Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we talk about Exodus 16, 1-18, the story of manna in the wilderness. We're only six weeks out of slavery in Egypt, and already the people are anxious about where their next meal is going to come from. We talk about the pernicious power of economies of accumulation, which convince us that there is not enough, turning our neighbors into our competitors. We talk about the nature of miracles and the contrast between the pillar of fire in the Exodus and today's thin layer of dusty bread that prompts the people to say, what is that? When we think about the ways God's provision is like a locking Tupperware container, you'll just have to trust us on that one. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am okay. I love your enthusiastic okays. They're like, it's like your, your, your tone says amazing. Your words say meh. I am encouraging myself. It's like put on a smile and it makes you feel happy. Yeah. So you're faking it till you're making it kind of thing. No, I mean, I'm fine. I'm okay. I don't know. I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? Well, I mean, so the proper answer was now that we're here together on the Bible Worm podcast, I'm doing great. That's beautiful, Bobby. Yeah. Like how can, how can it be meh when you're Bible worming? What could go wrong? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We will see what can go wrong. We will. Things do go wrong from time to time. And then we can complain about them, which is sort of the theme of this passage that we're having today. Oh, that uh, was masterful. I know. Segway. Really good. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks. So this week we are in Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 18. This is the story, as we will see momentarily, of manna in the wilderness. This is one of my favorite stories in the, in the Torah, I think. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm excited to read it with you. Well, now I feel like I mean, I've created I like pressure fine, for myself. But, uh, you know. But I want to read it with someone who like really. Now I feel like I gotta bring it. it. I, I feel like I should have been like, ah. Well. <laughs> I've never even heard this story. If I'm like, this is my favorite <laughs> passage, and then I don't have anything interesting to say about it, that's gonna no. be terrible. How could that, that possibly happen. happen? So, Amy, last time when we talked, Moses was on Mount Sinai talking to God, who no, told- he wasn't. He was. Wasn't he at the? Oh, he was at like he wasn't like on the mountain. Isn't the burning bush on the mountain? I don't think it's on the mountain. Isn't that why God says, come back here and worship me, and that'll be a sign? He's in the wilderness. He didn't climb a mountain. <laughs> he took them sheep up the mountain. <laughs> why would he do that? Because you got to get grass. <laughs> <laughs> He's on a grassy mountain. Came to Horeb, to the mountain of God. So, so you're in your vision of you this. You just ruined my life. He can't be on a mountain. He has to be in the middle of nowhere. Why? He is in the middle of nowhere. The mountain is in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so it is okay. possible. Here's, the, here's uh, the mediating point between your vision of last week's story, which we are now talking about for kind of a long time, for a long time uh, and, yeah. and mine is 
possibly he's like at the foot of the mountain. So there is Sinai. You're going to come back here and worship me on this mountain. But right mm-hmm. now they're hanging out around the mountain. My yes. hesitation about that is I don't think that the part around the mountain is holy ground. I think only the mountain is holy. And thusly, Moses was on the mountain. I like the other version where they're near <laughs> the mountain. Okay, so nearest the nearest like landmark is the mountain. So they just say they're at the mountain, but they're Moses, Moses, in the of take off your sandals because you are n- nearly adjacent to holy ground. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> I mean, there's a temple analogy to make here, right? Where the holy of holies is what you really—that's the really holy place. But then you've got these kind of outer rings that are. You know, varying levels of holy. Well, I mean, how mountainous is this mountain that he's going to bring all these sheep up there for no reason? <laughs> okay, but this was a question for last week. So yeah, yeah, we should have talked about this last week, but we did I'm not. I'm sure that we'll get this text again in a future narrative lectionary We will. Series. So four years from now, 2025, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> we're pre-planning. We'll sort this out. So, Amy, last time we talked, we were... Sort of near Mount Sinai with an eyesight close enough that we could call it Mount Sinai without actually being there. <laughs> and Moses encountered God in a burning bush, and we had the whole thing. God says, go set my people free. Now, here we are in Exodus chapter 16. A lot, a lot has happened. What yes. do we need to know in order to prepare us for hearing this story today? Well, the very big thing that happened was that (laughs) God did indeed bring the people Israel out of Egypt through the hand of Moses, Bayad Moshe. Yeah. It was very dramatic. There were 10 dramatic and horrible plagues and then a crossing of the treacherous sea. Yeah. And I know that we have some previous podcasts, both talking about the plagues, I think, and also talking about the crossing of the sea and the ways in which it's just so over the top, Bobby. Like there were so many places where it was like, God probably could have accomplished this task with less grandeur, like in terms of the actual negotiation with Pharaoh. But the the grandeur of it, I think, really plays into developing the relationship with the Israelites. So the Israelites start to you know, believe that God exists and believe that God will be able to do things for them. And as we will see, you know, quite immediately in this chapter, they just crossed the sea in Exodus 15. Yeah. So we're picking up right after that. And immediately they are unsure that they will be provided for. Yeah. I think that's an important point. That last point is important. So we just crossed the sea. And then actually there's one little story in between where the, they're concerned about mm. water. Mm-hmm. And yep, then there's yep. our story where they're going to be concerned about food. And so yep. it's really a fascinating detail of this text, the way that it's told, that the very first thing after they miraculously escape from the hand of Pharaoh is these concerns about, I mean, very basic things. Like you would be yeah. concerned about water. You would be concerned about food. But it's interesting in the narrative. Like you don't get to celebrate the amazingness of the crossing of the sea for very long before you start reading about the anxiety that the, that the people have. Yeah, it's they're very like embodied stories. It doesn't you can't just think about it in the abstract. Like, isn't it so great that we were saved? It's like if you're really thirsty, it's hard to <laughs> think about grand theological ideas. You know, you're thinking about being thirsty. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so before we get started, I have one very small-minded question for you, mm-hmm. which is about pronunciation of the wilderness in which we find ourselves. In Hebrew, it's the wilderness of Sin, 
It's related to the name of the mountain Sinai, which in Hebrew is Sinai. In English, it looks like the wilderness of sin. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are like very bad Midrashic interpretations that one could make about how we're in the wilderness. Of course, we're in the wilderness of sin. And so like yeah. everything's bad, but that's not at all what's happening here. Like this has no- nothing to do with sin at all. It's just transliterated Correct. Hebrew. Correct. If you were reading this in an English speaking context, would you say sin, seen, or sign? Like Sinai. Oh, gosh. I, I had not, strangely, I had not really thought of the fact that sin sounds like sin in English. Like yeah. that the Hebrew, yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that and how incredibly misleading it could yeah. be. Sign seems too weird. So I would say, <laughs> it does. I would say scene. Scene, yeah. The, the value of sign, which is minimal, is that it makes a yeah. connection to Sinai. Yes. And no, so you, I agree. You're in the wilderness of Sinai. Maybe that's, maybe that's what it should be, but that's not the way it is in, in, in RSV. All right. Now I don't know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, I'm going to say scene. Say a different one every time. No, that would be confusing. Sign, sign everywhere. Sign. Oh, I just dated myself. You don't even I know that song. I was going to sing, I saw the sign. I saw I the sign. I saw the sign. Do you remember that time that it was my birthday and... I think it was my 35th birthday because I have a birthday compilation from you called Bobby for President. (laughs) But you didn't give it to me until my 36th birthday. And do you remember why? Because you were looking for Ace of Base. I saw the sign. (laughs) (laughs) And you couldn't find it anywhere to put it in the mix. Like, I guess it wasn't on iTunes or whatever. This this was a while ago. And um, so I got it on my 36th birthday. It was like re-elect Bobby for President. And and it was because you needed that, like... (laughs) I needed that song. No, yeah. you needed that song. A birthday compilation okay, for me Bobby, is incomplete the without. The answer to your question has come from the past. I saw the sign. Now you need to pronounce that word sign. I saw the sign. Okay, here we go. Good luck remembering. Okay. I'm in Exodus chapter 16, and we're going to start reading verses 1 to 3. I don't know if I can do this now because I'm going to chuckle when I get to sign. <laughs> The whole congregation of the Israelites set out from Elim, and Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Can you just help me a little bit with the timestamp there, the 15th day of the second month? Yeah. So, I mean, I think they have been in the desert now for six weeks. I think that's right. So, so even though it's, you know, it comes up quickly when you're reading the text, it's, it's been a minute. So the fact that they're running out of any food provisions they had and getting worried about that because they yeah. haven't seen any way to replenish them seems valid. Yeah, that's a really helpful framing. And, you know, we do get that notice at the end of, I think it's in 14, maybe, that when the Israelites leave, they take with them things from Egypt. And so you kind of get the, you kind of imagine that they've had sort of provisions from their old life Mm -hmm. that have carried them for a while. And now those things are running out and they don't see what's coming next. Yeah. It says the congregation complained against Moses and Aaron. And so thoughts about the, role of Moses and Aaron here and why they're getting complained about? I mean, it is, what they actually say is, what the Israelites say is interesting to me because they say, if we had died by the hands of the Lord in the land of Egypt. So they're recognizing 
the Lord is part of this story. Yeah. Right? And and maybe even recognizing that the Lord brought them out of Egypt. But then they say, you have yeah. brought us into this yeah. wilderness yeah. to starve us and kill us. Yeah. So it seems like maybe they think, I don't know if they think like that was sort of like a one and done situation. God got them out of slavery and now they're just in the wilderness and God's not there anymore. Or yeah. it's just easier to shoot the messenger. But they definitely seem to be holding Moses and Aaron directly responsible for this situation. Yeah, that's the way I read that too. And I've kind of gone back and forth a little bit about whether it's the case that even though this miraculous thing happened in Egypt, whether they've kind of started to doubt whether Mm -hmm. that actually is what happened or like, you know, like we thought it was the Lord at the time, but now we're not so sure. And so now it's back to, we're just going to blame the people who are leading or whether it's that they're nervous about complaining against God, mm-hmm. which is going to cause them some problems later. And so mm-hmm. they just, they're like, well, the closest thing we can do is complain against Moses and Aaron. And the text doesn't really, in my mind, give us a way of settling that. But what's yeah. clear enough is they seem to be accusing Moses and, and Aaron here. Yeah. That line, I mean, their wish is, I wish that we had died in the land where we were enslaved. Yeah. Because at least there, we had meat and bread. Our bellies were full. That is so, I don't even know. How do you, like, there's so much in that that seems so human. What yeah. Do you, what do you do with that? You know, it's so interesting because I was like, this, like, what they're saying is sort of like, this is a, either this is a terrible way to die. Mm-hmm. Or I wish we had already done the dying. So we didn't have to do it now. Yeah. Like, I wish this, this suffering were behind us. And I, I mean, one of my questions reading this is like, as a reader, are we supposed to, like, how seriously should we take this? Is this poignant? Are we supposed to, like, roll our eyes and laugh at them for being so dramatic? Are we yeah. supposed to think they're ungrateful? I mean, I'm supposed to, whatever. The question is, what do we, how yeah. do we actually read them? And I, as, as you well know, have quite a lot of empathy for the Israelites in the yeah. desert. But I don't, yeah, I don't know. What, how, how do you read it? Do you empathize with them? I think, I think I do. Here, I'll just tell you what I think, and then you can yeah, tell yeah, me yeah, whether, yeah, yeah. whether it's empathetic or not. I think this is so true of human nature yeah. that we w- would often rather know where our next meal is coming from, even if we know we're getting our next meal in a system that is exploiting us or exploiting someone else. Yeah. You know, Pharaoh is feeding them so they can do forced labor, building storage cities for Pharaoh's extra food. And there's, there's this, you know, notion in this text that they've been so shaped into that system that that's what they think. Like, that's better than the alternative, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is to be free, but not to know where our, where our meal's coming from. Mm-hmm. So I feel for them. I recognize myself in them, right? Like, yeah, the thought of sort of being free of the system scares me, even as I think maybe that would be, you know, a good thing. But I wish more for them. You know what I mean? Like, I I wish they could get past where they are, but I totally understand and relate to. So I guess that's empathetic. I I relate to it for sure. Yeah, there's a, I mean, we joke in the Jewish community probably 
other communities do also about Jewish food anxiety, like having, you know, having a Seder that lasts too long and you can't eat until the end of it. So like <laughs> people get more and more anxious that they're not going to be able to make it to, yeah, you know, whatever to, to, to the food. And so there's so much food at everything because, because it's such a distraction to have that anxiety. And here, of course, you don't know that there's a meal on the other end of this. And so, yeah, just this like level of kind of primal panic that you're not going to be able to meet your basic physical needs is that's really real. No, and I think that last point is important. So the two things they've complained about since crossing the sea are we don't have any water and we don't have any bread. Like, yeah. these are not, you know, luxury items that they're wishing for. It's that they yeah. literally seem to have no sustenance, or at least their their sustenance is running out. This is not we don't have, you know, leisure time to watch Netflix or whatever. This is right. like these things we need to just like stay alive. Mm-hmm. So it's real anxiety. Anything else we should say about that first section? The only other thing that, mm, I don't know, might be worth noting is in, in verse two, it says the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And you mentioned that before they were worried about their water supply. And there it was just a smaller, a, a subgroup of them who were grumbling and complaining. But here it's, it's everybody. There's a lot of people complaining to Moses and Aaron. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Like, this is not, this is a widespread sentiment. The sense is that all the people are now mm-hmm. kind of caught up in this anxiety and, and, and complaining about it. Okay, so picking up then in verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people will go out and gather enough for that day. In that way, I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your complaining against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord has heard the complaining that you utter against him, what are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. Let's just start out with this, since we've had a story already in the narrative lectionary this fall about testing. God, on the one hand, is doing something gracious, right? I'm going to give them food here in the wilderness, but I'm going to do it as a test to see whether they follow my instruction. What do you think about that idea of provision and testing sort of coming together? That's a really interesting way to ask the the question. I mean, in some ways, I think it was really, uh, this was like a masterful way to, on God's part, to, to build trust and this sort of daily reminder of their dependence on God and a daily opportunity for God to show like, yes, indeed, it will happen again, just as I'm saying it will happen. And I see the words there that there's a test for them. What exactly do you think the test is? I think the test is going to be this provision where you're only supposed to gather enough for the day, and then you're supposed Mm. to gather twice as much to get through the Sabbath. That's the way I've always read that, is the the question is, are you going to try to gather more than you need? Yeah. No, I guess it makes sense. It's not not explicit there yet. No, yeah, you're right. you're right. That will come up. That will come up later. Is your trans- so my translation in the NRSV was, God says in verse 4, I am going to rain bread from heaven. Is that similar to JPS? Yeah, I will rain down bread for you from the sky. 
when you hear that, just, I mean, pretending like you don't know what comes next, I'm going to rain bread down from heaven. Like, what do you see in your mind's eye? <laughs> I, okay, this is what I actually see. You're going to be so sorry you asked this question. <laughs> no, I'm not. If you take, like, soft bread, like Wonder Bread, yeah, and you take off the crust, you can, like, roll it into a ball in your fist, <laughs> yes. like a yeah. sweaty little soft bread ball. My daughter so calls picked- it mushy dish. Oh, good. It has a name. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I picture mushy dish falling from the sky. That's what I picture. Just like giant. Not they giant. don't have to be giant necessarily. Like but golf like ball little, si- hail size of yeah, bread pellets. Of like wonder bread balls. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. What are you picturing? No, I kind of see some, something like that too. And I mean, this to, to me, this is going to be important in a little bit, but to me, this sounds very dramatic, right? Like the skies are going to open up and just bread's going to come like falling down and it's just going to be like this miraculous bounty. And mm-hmm. as we'll see when we get further into the story, that's not exactly what happens. Yeah. And so just that sort of the, the interplay between how God describes it and what you see when God describes it and then what's actually going to happen here in a yeah. little bit. Yeah, rain is a very... Uh dramatic verb it's to big. use for what happens. Yeah. <laughs> big, mm-hmm. big, big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So God then gives the instruction in verse five, on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring, and it will be twice as much as they gather. So, so God says, I'm going to make it rain bread on the sixth day. They're going to gather and it will be twice. What, what do you make of that idea of the sixth day? I mean, what I, I used to understand that to be on the sixth day, you do twice as much work so that yeah. on Shabbat, you don't do any work, yeah. right? So you have twice as much food. And, and that is sort of in keeping with, you know, my lived experience of trying to take a day off ever. Like, it's not yeah. like the work you had to do that day disappears. Right. If you don't want to cook one day, you have to cook for that day on a different day and, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that's actually what this says. I think it says you gather what... You do the same thing you would have done. Yeah. And it will prove to be double. Yeah. That is the best vacation miracle ever. I mean, it's not vacation, it's Shabbat. But like if that could happen for vacation, where you like don't have (laughs) to do all the extra work before vacation so it doesn't pile up. No, I I love that idea. And I, I think you're reading it. I think both of those readings are actually really nice. Like, this is the the way you tend to read it is you've got to work twice as hard on the sixth day and prepare for the seventh. But the way the text actually reads, I think that you're exactly right, is it's not clear exactly how that's going to happen. It's just it will be. I think you're right. We're going to see a little bit later, too, that there seems to be some sort of divine accounting of things that takes place in this text. But I read that, I think, with you, that there's some sort of miracle that's happening here where you gather just as much on the sixth day and it somehow it's going to get you through the seventh. Maybe the test is that they can't eat both the six days and the seventh days on the sixth day, which is what I would probably have done. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, I like that because this comes right after the test. So here's the instruction. It's going to be twice as much on the sixth day, but you can't. And you will control yourself. Ooh, I have to tell you about some Tupperware that is very special to me <laughs> that the Israelites could have used. In the desert. Okay. okay. No, I'm serious. This is serious. For Father's Day, we got my husband this Tupperware that has a timer, like a locking timer on it. What? So you take your, if you're supposed to have like one piece of chocolate a night, you 
open it up, take your piece of chocolate, put the chocolate back in, and then it is locked for 24 hours or whatever time you set it for. And you can't open it again. That's amazing. And in the instructions, it has like FAQs. And one of them is, what if I want to get my thing out early? And they're like, come on, y'all. We know that if we gave you a way to get your thing out early, this wouldn't, like, you would just ignore it and get your thing out early. So there's no way to get it out early. Get a hammer. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know what the first thing that occurred to me was? (laughs) What? What happens if I drop my keys in there? (laughs) (laughs) I like, I don't know why I would be like trying to engorge myself with chocolate cho- while holding my car so keys. so furiously that you drop your car keys in there. Yeah, I'm like, oh no, I, gotta, I can't get to work now. Tragic. Call my boss and be like, sorry, my keys are in the locking Tupperware. That would be a fantastic What can you call. do? So I'm trying to think about like what, like if you give someone that gift, <laughs> what, what does that he, say uh, he wanted about it. them? Oh, okay, he wanted that, it. that helps. Yeah. That does help. <laughs> Yeah. So no, I love that. Nice so here's here is, you know, part of the dynamic of this text. I love I love where you're headed there. You don't have a locking Tupperware, <laughs> so what you've got is some kind of trust that what you've got is gonna be enough for tomorrow, and yeah. you're not gonna need to overeat today in order to make it through tomorrow. It's not gonna spoil. Nobody's gonna steal yeah. it. It's gonna be yeah. fine. I love that. And you you know this the background of this text is that Pharaoh in Egypt has been building, you know, he's been through the experience of the famine and he's stored all the food. And so now it seems like he just continues that process. He keeps building like storage cities to put things in. And so they've escaped from a culture that is all about over acquiring in order to protect yeah. oneself against anxiety about tomorrow. That's and right. here's God saying, look, if you're going to do this thing with me, you're going to have to, without a locking Tupperware, control your anxiety and trust the process. I love that. Locking Tupperware. (laughs) (laughs) You know you need some locking Tupperware. Now, then we get this whole, like, I just, this, the way that Moses and Aaron talk to the people here is so interesting to me. Because, like, three or four times, like, in the evening, you're going to know it was the Lord who brought you out. And you'll see the glory of the Lord because he's heard you complaining against the Lord. For what are we? He says, like, two or three times, like, you're really complaining about God. Like, yeah. leave us out of it. What do you make of that sort of dynamic of Moses pushing back the complaining from himself to, to God? I mean, I think I have always read it in light of, I don't know if this is right. I've always read it in light of the fact that Moses wasn't actually, wasn't, you know, seeking out this leadership position to begin with. Mm. And this is, he's in a terrible position. Yeah. He doesn't know how where they're going to get food from. Like he doesn't, yeah. <laughs> and he has the whole community of Israel is complaining against him. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think I read it sort of as a, this is above my pay grade. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, you're looking at the wrong guy. Yeah. But it could also be, as you suggested, sort of earlier, that uh, not quite a warning to the Israelites, but like. That you are compl- what you're doing is complaining against God. Like you yeah. should be on notice. Yeah, I think that they're both complaining against God, and also in verse three, they had said, "You brought us Moses out into mm-hmm. this wilderness." Mm-hmm. And so, in a in some sense, they're also saying that Moses is the one who set them free from Egypt. Yeah, I mean, he kind of did, right? But there's this sort of like Moses, con- right? The Israelites are confused. Yeah. 
Biad Moshe. Is that is that? Yeah. Yeah. But it's God's the God's the one who's doing it, and so both they're complaining against the wrong person, and also they're attributing the escape mm-hmm. from Egypt to the wrong person. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things in this text that's so fascinating to me is here we are six weeks away from this miracle where, I mean, the, the waters of the Red Sea like stood up and formed waves, I mean, walls, right. and they walked through on dry land and they saw a pillar of cloud going in front of them. Like, this is so clearly a divine action. And just six weeks later, they're able to say like, oh no, it was just you that did that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of got me pondering this sort of like, when we encounter miraculous things, and I mean, the, the miracles that I encounter are not Red Sea aren't <laughs> quite Red Sea level, miracles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but if, I mean, here you've got even somebody who encountered a Red Sea quality miracle six weeks later is like, ah, I'm not so sure that was actually a miracle. Maybe it's just you, you letting right. me out here. Right. There's just something there about how quickly the miraculous sort of comes to s- seem mundane or something like that. I No, I mean, I think that's right. There's... Yeah, it doesn't have a <laughs> miracles don't have a long half life, you know. Yeah. Like they, they that the energy from them dissipates or dissipated in this situation really quickly. Yeah. yeah. So God's going to have to then do another miraculous thing in order for you to know. So you then you will know when you see the the raining bread that God mm-hmm. brought you out of the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi, I'm Reverend Joanna Herriter, pastor of Peace Mennonite Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Last year was my first year preaching through the narrative lectionary, and Bible Worm quickly became my first and usually most significant Bible study tool each week. I love the lighthearted yet in-depth textual analysis and the attention to issues of social justice. Sometimes I just want to take Amy and Bobby's closing thoughts and offer that as my sermon. But I don't, I promise. This year, I decided to support Bible Worm financially and join their Patreon at the basic $4 a month level. If you're one of those responsible preachers who start sermon prep more than five days before the sermon, you can support at a slightly higher level to get early access to the content. Just go to patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's all do our little bit to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this valuable resource. And now back to this week's podcast. So one last thing that I noticed about this section is that, you know, in the last story where they were worried about water, Mm. they complained about the water, and then Moses cries out to the Lord, and the Lord answers with what Mm -hmm. to do. And there's a very clear sort of Moses is the intermediary, and, you know, and here Moses doesn't cry out to God. It's like God hears the complaining and tells Moses what he's going to do. Yeah. And then God never tells Moses to tell the Israelites— but they do. Yeah. Like some of the formal structures that seems to have been in place are are a little bit looser here. Yeah. Which in some ways I think I think Moses and Aaron's urgency, like sense of urgency about telling the Israelites goes back to that idea that like the Israelites think that they're in charge, Moses and Aaron. And they, they want to clarify that they're not actually yeah. driving this train. It is interesting to pay attention to who is talking to whom in this text. And yeah. The, the, yeah. But you're exactly right. God just sort of overhears this and, and then talks to Aaron and Moses, who then talk to the Israelites. So this is like <laughs> triangulation. In a minute, I think Moses is actually going to talk to God in front of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. 
but then they're gonna have to anyway. Yeah. Okay. So in verse, picking up in verse nine, then Moses said to Aaron, here's another one, another one that's like, Right, right. So Moses has just been talking to the community, and now he looks to Aaron. Okay, yeah. yes, continue. Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the Israelites, draw near to the Lord, for he has heard your complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the Israelites, they looked toward the wilderness, and the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, I have heard the complaining of the Israelites. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I even just get confused about who's talking to whom in this text. It is, it's a confusing text, and I think there's a little bit of, you know, source mashup in this story. Because I was going to ask you starting out, what time is it that this is happening? Like, what time are you pick? I mean, I don't think it says, but what time of day do we think that they see this cloud? That's a good question. And I think I sort of think it's sort of like mid to late afternoon. Like, it's still the middle of the day, but we're headed in toward the mm-hmm. evening time. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure why I think that, though, other than in verse 12, at, at twilight you shall eat meat. But that's not really talking about. You know, that's sort of like from henceforth, it's going to be twilight and morning. So what, what time of day do you think it is? I mean, I don't know what time of day it is, but, but the reason I ask is that, okay, in the section we read before this, in verse 7, Moses tells the Israelites, in the morning, you shall behold the presence mm. of the Lord, the kavod Adonai, the like, mm-hmm. and that's actually the first time that phrase is used in the Torah, kavod Adonai. Like, oh, really? Uh, it's very difficult to, how would you translate that? I mean, presence here obviously glory some people say like i don't know some kind of manifestation right yeah the nrsv has glory but kavod yeah. is like the the dignity or the weightiness or the, the weightiness heaviness yeah. or something like yeah. that yeah yeah mm-hmm. and so rashi who's a famous jewish interpreter says because this cloud shows up in the afternoon evening the cloud is not actually the theophany that Moses is talking about, the theophany is in the appearance of the manna in the morning, like Mm. God showing up through that miraculous act. Although here it all, maybe it's both. I mean, again, it's, it's a source mashup, so you can kind of read it in, in different ways, but I, I don't know. I'm quite taken by that idea that the, you will see the presence of the Lord and you will see it in the appearance of the manna. I really love that. I really love that because I mean, this is just my own experience as a, as a somewhat of a skeptical human person is that I have very rarely, if ever, encountered the glory of the Lord in mm. itself. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, like I'm walking mm-hmm. along and there, you know. There it the, is. Very, very few escalators going up and down, <laughs> angels mm-hmm. going up and down into heaven in my experience. And so when I encounter the glory of the Lord, it is precisely in the manifestations um, in the sort of more mundane things of life, that yeah. there is enough food and, and things like that. So I love that idea that, uh, that, that maybe Rashi thought something kind of similar. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, seeing God in the, the provision for our needs is, is much more likely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you think about that in the context of the Exodus story, then they've encountered God 
parting the Red Sea and miraculously saving them from the Pharaoh. And that has faded very quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's the big theophany kind of glory. Mm-hmm. And then here we're going to have, I mean, bread falling from the sky is not mundane exactly, but it's a different kind of uh, manifestation. And so you see it in the processes that enable daily life to continue. And yeah. even here in this text, it's bo- both of those things, or, or maybe the first of those things isn't even entirely convincing. And so you, you need the second one. I love that. I love thinking about the, the reverberations of both types of encounters we might have with God and the, and the staying power. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So now we've got a promise in the evening of meat and in the morning of bread, mm-hmm. which is a, previously it was just, I'm going to rain down bread. And now here it's, there's going to be meat and there's going to be bread. I feel like the meat is kind of a big deal, right? In the ancient world, it's not like you're eating meat three meals a day or even one meal a day or even like one meal a month. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting, too, that so far the Israelites have not been told exactly what is happening here. That's true. <laughs> That's Right? True. Like they've yeah. been told that they're, they're going to get flesh to eat in the evening and bread in the morning, but not that, it, not that the bread is going to continue Every day. Yeah. You know, like they've been told they're going to get a meal. And, well, they're going to get dinner and breakfast. It's like they went to like a bed and breakfast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but they, they, they don't know sort of the, the magnitude of what exactly is being promised here. That is super helpful to me because I sort of like it's hard when you're just reading to keep track of what you would have heard if you were an Israelite. Yes. No, that's right. But the only thing they've really heard, is that right, is what's in verse 8? When the Lord gives, I mean, draw near to the Lord or whatever, but then when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and fill your fill of bread in the morning because yeah. the Lord has heard your complaining. But they don't know the thing about the Sabbath and the Yeah, they don't know about all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So when you get meat in the morning and bread in the evening, then you will know that I am the Lord. It's so interesting, though, the number of times God has to prove God's godness. I know. All right, friends. So now we're in (laughs) verse 13. In the evening, quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a fine flaky substance as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you needs, and omer to a person according to the number of persons, all providing for those in their own tents. The Israelites did so, some gathering more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, those who gathered much had nothing over, and those who gathered little had no shortage. They gathered as much as each of them needed. So, God said, I'm going to rain down bread. And then God gives a, like a, a light dusting <laughs> of a bready substance. <laughs> like, <laughs> to frost. Yeah. It's kind of an interesting, just that contrast is interesting to me where we, we saw it was going to be like balls of mushy dish, like mm-hmm. falling from the sky. And instead it's just like, you know, it's like frosted mini wheats <laughs> or something like, it's just a little light frosting. Uh, and the people don't even know what it is. What's, what is that? Yeah, it's not, it's not bread, like, in a way that 
is familiar to them. Yeah. But it is edible. Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere it's compared to poppy seeds. Was that here? No. It wasn't here. Maybe in the numbers. But text. I've, yeah. What what other speculation have you heard about what exactly manna is? I know there's a midrash that it tastes like whatever you want it to taste like, Ooh. which is like very Willy Wonka, you know. Yeah. But that's not in here. <laughs> yeah, no, that would be amazing. To me, that would change the whole story. Uh, yes. Because like yes. to me, the, yes. Part of the point is this is kind of boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you think about all the ways that the miracle of giving bread could happen, like there's some dew. And it evaporates, and there's some white stuff left. And it's kind of plain and, you know, but it will sustain you till tomorrow. Right. To me, that's a really beautiful and important idea. Like, we're, we're not living in the lap of luxury, mm-hmm. but there's enough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if it yeah. could taste like whatever I wanted it to, to me, that just seems like. That right now we're in, like, fantasy land. Yeah. Lap of luxury. No, I, th- I mean, I really, I also love the sort of sparseness of it. This will sustain you. And the part, the part of you that's really like tied up in anxiety can relax. Yeah. But it's not, yeah, it's not a feast every day. You're not feasting, but you're okay. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. It's interesting coming from my context with Mercy Church and uh, like thinking about the giving of food. And there really is in, especially when people first become homeless, there is a there is a worry, a constant worry about where's the yeah. next meal coming from, and so people will overeat and they will like stuff things in their bag, and there's this kind of anxiety about food that that reminds me of this. And mm-hmm. when you think these Israelites have been wandering now for six weeks and they are running out of food, they don't know where the meal's coming from, and what they get is this kind of I don't. It's not very it's not very profound or convincing, right? The, there's not there's nothing to put in your pocket or put in your backpack. Yeah. And so on the one hand, yes, there is there is enough. And on the other hand, it always seems like maybe it's not going to be enough. Right. Um, and so I think that anxiety is is very real. Which I think is part of why it's such an interesting and masterful way to try to guide the Israelites towards understanding their dependence on God. Yeah. And Trust, you know, trusting over time, over a long time, yeah, that the next day's food will come. Yeah, like to me, there's the miracle is the you get it once, like that's amazing, like that's nice. Yeah, but yeah. it's the next day yes. and the next yep. day and the next day, and so over time, you you learn to live the day. Give us this day our daily bread, as Christians like to pray in the Lord's Prayer. It's it's not about bread that comes enough for ever. It's just enough for today. Do you think God didn't realize that people were going to need food? I just had this image in my head of like, you get a pet and forget to feed it. Like, <laughs> I oh, mean, I'm going to set up an automatic feeder for you. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I, I want to say no, but then, you know, like the people groaned last week and God's like, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot about you guys. Um, like, <laughs> God does not always remember in this text in the way that you might like God to remember. I mean, God doesn't have a body, so, yeah. you know, sometimes if I'm not, if I eat too many pretzels at four o'clock, I just forget to make dinner. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happened. God's eating pretzels. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about the quail? 
because yeah. I hadn't known much about the quail until preparing for this uh, this conversation where I read in multiple study Bibles that there's like a whole, f- there's a thing of quail who are fly, who are migrating between Africa and Europe, falling from the sky from exhaustion, yeah. which is terrible, and, and being like basically caught by hunters. Yeah. So, so this was maybe not so much like a supernatural, you know, birds will fall from the sky at you, but more of like providential timing. Yeah. Something like that. Have you heard that before? You must have heard that before. I have heard that before. And, you know, I am mostly not interested. I was going to say not persuaded by, but I don't know that that's actually true. It's that I'm not that interested in naturalistic explanations of miracles. Yeah. Because I think there's also an argument that manna is, or like the white stuff is like, I forget what it is exactly, but the secretion of yeah, an yeah, insect I read, or something. Yeah, yeah, I read that too. I was, and I wasn't interested in that. For some reason, I don't know why the quail one seems striking to me. Yeah. But I mean, I do like, so my resistance to that is, well, now you've just said like things fall out of the sky and like that's fine. And like God didn't have anything to do with that. But you could press that, and which is where maybe I think you, you might have been headed to say, God has made creation in such a way, in the, at least in this kind of narrative, that creation itself provides. And so you yeah. don't need to be anxious, yeah. not because God's going to intervene miraculously here like every morning, but because mm-hmm. nature is abundant enough. Is that sort of where you were headed? Not quite so eloquently, but I really like that. Which is funny because I don't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of like it, but like, I really, like, I really want to. I mean, okay, so I like it in the way that when we were talking earlier and you said, you know, I I haven't had an experience crossing the Red Sea, but I have had an experience of God in sort of the everyday, you know, provision. So I like it that way. It seems a little more true to my experience in the world. Yeah. But yes, in this story, I I, I hear what you're saying in the story. It's interesting that, so the previous section of text had set up the like, when you see this, you're going to know the glory of the Lord. Mm-hmm. The people, when they see it, they say, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> like in Hebrew, it's manhu, which is where like, then they call its name man, which means like what? Or at least may- maybe that's what it means. So the- they call ma- manna just means like, what is, what's that? What is it? So it's, it's interesting like a, to me, like the glory of the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then like this, like, what is, what's that? Then they shall know. That's really funny. Yeah. Do you no, do? They like, will not know. They don't know. <laughs> yeah, they have no idea. Should have spelled something out with the little frosted flakes. <laughs> do you do anything with that sort of like, I mean, the name of the stuff is like they call it manna, which one derivation of that is what is it? What they say is what is that? So they're experiencing a miraculous thing and they, they don't have words around it or something. Do you go anywhere with that? I could, okay, this might be an overreach, Bobby, so this might be an overreach, overreach. but I'm thinking now about last time when I, you know, kept pressing on the idea that, like, Moses had to be pretty curious about that bush to look at it for so long, so I wonder if there's some element, even if it's it's nothing like Moses's enduring, you know, enduring curiosity or awe, but it is this moment of curiosity of, Mm. noticing there's a new thing here and asking what it is, even if it's not like they immediately recognize that it's God, but they recognize that it's 
there and wonder about it. Yeah. I love that. So you can kind of read the, what is it as like a, a drawing in or something like that? Like it's, they're intrigued. It's, it's moving them closer to, to whatever it is. I'm trying on that reading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really like that connection to the Moses, uh, the Sinai adjacent text that we read last week. My head went to God has promised to rain bread from heaven, and instead God gives this mm. stuff that is so not impressive that mm-hmm. the response is like, what is that? Yeah. And I think my interpretation is troubled a little bit as we were talking before about like, who's God talking to? Mm-hmm. When, but in any case, God has seemed to say, this is going to be amazing. And then what the people receive is, it's amazing in its own way, like you were saying before, but it's not amazing in its first, like, it doesn't like yeah. stand out like the crossing of a Red Sea or the pillar of cloud. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it is nonetheless miraculous. And it is kind of a raining down of heaven, right? That Yeah. The idea of rain and the idea of dew, you know, obviously connected in some way. Now, the, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of this whole text is the the gathering practice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so Moses tells them, look, you need to gather enough for your family and you can gather enough, like one portion per family member. And so this is all you're supposed to get. And so they go out and the text says some of them gathered too much, some of them gathered too little. But when they all got home, it turned out they all had exactly enough. That was sort of the Williamson version of that. But I, is well, that how I you understand was, what's happening? It, it's, I think so. But my translation of 17 just says, the Israelites did so, some gathering much, some little. Mm-hmm. And since they've just been instructed to fetch for everyone in their tent, it's not immediately clear to me whether the, whether the Israelites who were gathering much were gathering more than they should have or were gathering more because they were gathering for more people. Amy, you're really harsh in my mellow right here. <laughs> That's like my favorite image in the whole Bible. No, I really like it. <laughs> and you're just like, no. So there was some families had a lot of people. Well, it's not that I, I don't disagree with your reading. I, I really don't. And I like your reading, too, because it got me thinking a lot about um, like meritocracies and yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So like. I don't know if in verse 18, then it's some kind of, you know, quote unquote miracle that the person who had gathered too much now all of a sudden doesn't have extra, like it sort of shrunk down to right size itself. Or if it's that the person who had gathered much had gathered the right amount and everyone had followed the rules. Yeah. Those are very, very different. They're very different. But you want to talk about the one that you like? Yeah. I mean, if you read it the way that I have read it which is to say some gathered too much, some mm-hmm. gathered too little, and it was all evened out. To me, this is parallel to what you were talking about previously with the Sabbath, where you gather enough on the sixth day and it just somehow becomes enough for the seventh day and you don't know how. Yep. So I read this along the same lines. You gather way too much and it somehow just becomes enough. You gather way too little and it somehow just becomes enough. If you, if you follow that, obviously kind of where you're headed is, look, the, the community gets enough. In the, in the divine economy, mm-hmm. there is no such thing as overconsumption 
There is no such thing as underconsumption, even if it's because for whatever reason, you're not gathering enough. We're not told why the people who gather too little gather too little, if that's how you read it. It could be because they're lazy. It could be because they've got, mm-hmm. you know, family mem- like family members that need to be taken care of or because they have some kind of uh, infirmity that means they can't gather as much. Like, we don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And the text doesn't care what it is. And to me, this is a really beautiful contrast to kind of the way you think about the economics of Egypt, where it's gather, 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 like work for your food, put it all in a storehouse. If I can put it in my storehouse, I get to keep it and you can only have what I let you have Mm -hmm. versus in the divine economy of the wilderness, no matter how hard you work, no matter how little you work, what matters is that everybody gets enough. Nobody gets Mm -hmm. more than enough. Nobody gets less than enough. Everybody gets enough. And those two ways of viewing the world are really strikingly different. Mm-hmm. This, if you if you read much Brueggemann, you can clearly hear Brueggemann kind of in the back in the background here saying, like, look, this text is sketching out a world that is an alternative world to the economics of anxiety and overconsumption of Pharaoh, and therefore of all empires like our own, versus the what's going to become the vision of the Book of Deuteronomy, which is where you have a uh, an economy based on neighborliness, where the thing that matters is that everyone has sufficient for the day. Mm-hmm. So, I, so Brueggemann and, and 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 sort of I following him a little bit make a lot out of this image that you've just tried to take away from me. I'm not. I'm not. Try- I mean, I actually really like that image too, and I'm not. I'm. Not, okay, so let me ask a follow up question. Yeah. If, so then, did they just fail the test? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think so. Isn't but then, it weird that there's no consequence to them failing the test? Like, to me, the failing of the test is just a comment about human nature, right? Like, pretty much everybody, <laughs> I think. Like, I mean, yeah, s- sweeping universalisms. But in my own experience, <laughs> it is quite common for people to look out for themselves and to think, like, what we do, like, what we, how hard we work, that's what we deserve to have. Yeah. And the opposite of, like, everybody deserves to be sustained even if they're not gathering as much is kind yeah. of counter to at least my experience yeah. of human nature mm-hmm. so the failure of the test isn't really that surprising and it kind of makes me think like oh i probably would have failed that test too i mean and i do fail i failed it yesterday you know <laughs> it's interesting to think about the idea of a test and what you know i'm like preparing for uh, all this beginning of the school year, Hebrew review and assessments that we have to do in the community that that make the kids really anxious, understandably. Yeah. But we have to figure out somehow what they know and what they don't in order to figure out what to teach them. And so we're always trying to come up with different ways and different language to use about what what we're doing. And so I've been looking at language of a test, not saying test, but more like a like a GPS. Like we're I'm trying to figure out where you're at. Yeah, and like so it could be that yeah. you know God. That's not usually what they mean when they say God's testing someone. I don't think, but yeah. So then it becomes sort of a diagnostic of the. Let me just see. Let mm-hmm. me take the temperature. Let me just of see the what you'll do. And, see, and mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I say that uh, it's human nature, but one of the things that's helpful to me to keep reminding myself is narratively, the people just left Egypt, and yeah. so they've been a part of like they have been the economically exploited people in an exploitive system for 400 years and they don't know any obvious other way to be 
Yeah. And so, like, of course they failed the test, you know? Like, what do you think they're going to do? Right. And so in that sort of empathetic reading that, that you like to bring, you know, God is showing them another way more than God is saying, like, shame on you because you didn't get it. Yeah, I like that. And I, I think that fits in really nicely with the idea that they're told to only take a certain amount. And if they take too much, oh, look, it shrunk to the amount that I told you to take. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, look how that works. Oh, yeah. look, you're actually really for real, real not in charge of this. But you will be provided for. Yeah, you will have enough and exactly enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Amy, we've started sort of leaning toward contemporary interpretation of the text, thinking about what does this text have to say to us in our time and in our communities? Where does your interpretive insight go with this text today? I think that I am most struck of all the things that we talked about with this idea of sort of the the big things and the little things yeah. that God does in our lives and and the different kinds of reverberations that they have. You know, when I, I know that the, the biblical text and and many readers of the biblical text are are surprised and disappointed that the impact of the Exodus experience on the Israelites didn't just like they didn't just achieve faith, like level unlocked, and now you are <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there forever. And I mean, I also have never experienced anything so big as that. But I do find that there's there's no arriving at some kind of like permanent state of faith, whether your experiences are are big or small. So it's really interesting for me to think about the kind of, I don't know, what it looks like to build a relationship between God and humans that has some of these big things, but also has these sort of small, constant undercurrents that are predictable and reliable, almost so much so that you can, you know, that you'll cease to be impressed with them or you'll get bored with the manna as the Israelites will or, mm. or maybe start to think that it's not God at all. This is just what happens. This is just yeah. part of the seasons. This isn't a miracle. It's just, you know, whatever. This is just the do when it comes for some scientific reason or whatever. And I think it's, I don't know. I, I'm really interested in leaning into that idea, that question of like, what are the, what are the big and small things and how do both of them sort of offer pieces to a life of faith that might fit together in some way? Yeah, I no, I really love that. And the, yeah, the kind of questions about what are we looking for and, you know, things that, like, I don't know, we, I was talking a little, a little earlier about that idea of big miracles and small miracles. Yeah, and yeah. Everybody seems like I'm often looking for the big miracles. And, and I don't recognize that the dude that's on the ground is like, there, there's the miracle, like the sustenance for tomorrow. Yeah. Where does your head go with this? I hope you're going to talk about meritocracies. <laughs> talk about meritocracies. What are you going to talk about? Well... You know, where I really find energy in this text is, I mean, all the way back at the beginning of this text, when the people are, they've just come out of Egypt. They've been in the system that is exploiting them and killing them. And now they say, I wish we had just like died in that system because now we're just going to die out here in the wilderness. Like they, they have been liberated from this thing and they, they want to go back to it. And, you know, for me thinking about the the economic system of pharaoh 
and the economic system of God, which is gets sort of established in small number here. It's going to get established in a more sort of programmatic way in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere about care for the neighbor and the most vulnerable and all of these folks. Make, make sure that everyone can thrive. That's, that's what we see happening in this text. And, but the transition from one of those to the other involves the wilderness. And the wilderness is super scary. Like the, the one thing has fallen apart. The second thing does not yet exist. And even though God has set you free from the terrible exploitive system in this dramatic way, when there's nothing there to catch you, suddenly you're just in the wilderness and the next thing hasn't shaped up yet. Mm-hmm. That is scary. And people want to go back. And so that's got me reflecting about my own participation in our own version of Pharaoh's economy, you know, with um, the economy of anxiety and overconsumption and trying to acquire and we get what we deserve, meritocracy. Yeah. That is really comfortable to me even though I know it's killing me. Like it is literally killing people. And also Mm -hmm. it is exploiting the environment in ways Mm -hmm. that are going to kill all of us. I mean, already is. And so like the system doesn't work, but the alternative somehow scares even more, (laughs) right? Yeah. And so the, the courage or the trust, I guess, to step out into this kind of other way of doing things where what you get is enough for today And you make sure everyone else also gets enough for today. Mm -hmm. God provides, even though it's not in, you know, like particularly exciting or compelling even ways, Mm -hmm. but there's enough and that's, that's all you need. And it's so hard to move in that direction. For me, I think for a lot, for a lot of people just to say, well, you know, I know, I know where my meal's coming from tomorrow if I keep participating yeah. in, in this system. So I don't I'm, know, like with this text, it's, a, like it's an invitation in some ways, and it's sort of an empathetic reading of like, of course, Williamson, you know, this is, this is hard to do. But there's also an insistence about this text and about the whole wilderness journey that says, no, look, like the whole thing is you got to trust that there is enough for today and tomorrow and the next day, and that's the way, that's the way we're going to escape Egypt instead of just recreating Egypt over and over again. I love the way you drew that out, and I love it for a lot of reasons, but the thing that's really sticking in my head right now is you said something about, well, uh, the way that's really sticking in my head right now is the way that you connect this system with what will then be set up, explained to the Israelites. Like, this is this is what you're going to need to do once you're in the land of Israel. Yeah. So I'm going to show you now how this works because I, God, am the one with the resources and I'm yeah. going to allocate them every day equally. And that's how it's going to work with the hope that then once the Israelites do have fields and do have more sort of control of the resources, that they will have internalized this idea that you are the steward of that resource. You are not the owner of that resource. Right. and your job now is to make sure that everyone gets their equal part. Right. And there's a lot of a lot of worry in Deuteronomy that they won't be able to yeah. that they'll get confused as soon as they have control over the resource. They'll be like, "No, no, I'm not the steward, I'm the owner." And of yeah. course, you know, that's that is the human condition. Yeah. But I don't think I had read this story before in direct like on that path, on the on the way to that kind of economy that that God is talking about later later in the Torah. And I really love that. 
I think that's right. And I, I love the way you're connecting to, in some ways, this is, it's harder to do this in a situation of abundance where you have the illusion of control than mm-hmm. it is here in the wilderness. I mean, to go back to the, the, the locking Tupperware, like God is kind of a divine <laughs> locking Tupperware right here, yeah, right? right. Like I'm going to give you enough it. yeah. and it's going to rot if you t- take too much. So this is like, let's practice. And then it's when you get to the time. land, it's like, okay, but now here's an abundant land. And so this is going to be tempting, y'all. Which is exactly yeah. what God says to Moses on Mount Nebo, or what M- Moses says yeah. to the Israelites anyway. And by and large, it does not go well. No. And it continues <laughs> to not go well for, for, for all of us. Yeah. So we need to practice. What is that? We need to practice wilderness existence. I don't know quite what that looks like. We need to get locking Tupperwares. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think this is one of the things I struggle with a lot is I, I think the biblical witness is fairly clear in my mind about sort of the communal life that God has in mind. I think it's consistent in the Torah and in the New Testament, yeah. that, um, in, in all of our scriptures, that there is a community that's envisioned here where everybody has enough. But to get there from where we are, that feels so it's scary. It's really hard. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, I have loved talking about this text with you. Me too. Next time, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 3, the call of Samuel. Next week, you get to do the summary of what has happened between Exodus 16 <laughs> and Summer- 1 Samuel 3. So start working on that now. <laughs> yeah, we do skip some things. Man, by the time you get to 1 Samuel, you've skipped. Whew. Yeah. Stuff has 60% happened. 60% of the Torah and <laughs> Joshua and Judges. Yeah. Okay, I'll work on it. But skip we shall. <laughs> All right, Amy. Well, I think you should put something funny in Will's Tupperware, in his locking Tupperware. Ooh. I don't know what it would be. Put his keys in there. <laughs> And let me know how it goes. But if he's mad, yeah. don't tell him it was my idea. I won't. I, of course not. I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Amy. I'll see you next time. All right. Sounds good. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're so grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going. A special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporters, Angela Minky Ballou, Jackie Julian Braun, and David Marion Clark. Join us next week when we'll be discussing the call of the boy Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, 1-21. Until then, keep on digging.